0: if you're managing your portfolio systematically and rationally you're doing architecture whether you call it that or not because you are inventorying your assets and your capabilities and your systems and your products you are looking at redundancy you're looking at sprawl you're trying to make well advised investment decisions based on you know the technical debt and the currency and the user attitudes and you know the internal demand i mean business within a business you know get back to the entrepreneurship the micro enterprises you're looking at things as essentially you know entities in the small that are run as small businesses to me that's where really this world of micro enterprises and architecture converges um in significant ways Hello
1: everyone and welcome back to the Boundless Conversations podcast. On this podcast, we meet with pioneers, thinkers, and doers, and uh, we talk about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in our rapidly changing world. Uh, Today I'm alone on the podcast, uh, but I have a very special guest, Uh, we have a friend and instigator of, uh, uh, you know, uh, thinking, uh, we had uh, uh, several exchanges in the past months about these topics we have with us Charles Betts. Charles is VP and Research Director, uh, Enterprise Architecture of Forrester Research. He, he talks to a lot of people about how digital and organizations uh, operate at scale. And welcome to the podcast, uh, Charles.
0: Thank you, Simone. It's great to be here. Quite honored.
1: On this podcast, we, we talk a lot about uh, organizations, products, I must say that we don't talk a lot about technology, maybe uh, less than one would expect. Right. And so uh, I, today I, I'm really excited to get into the implications of a lot of the conversations that we have on products and org to look into how the technology uh, behind all these uh, is evolving and adapting uh, to the trends we are seeing. So as a starting point, I think as, a, as an icebreaker, uh, I would like you to help us uh, understand better from your precious observation point how is this convergence between products technology and organizations happening in the last few years and what are the, the big trends that you can uh, describe in this uh, convergence
0: well when i think about product and i think about entrepreneurship the first thing i think about is is the unbounded imagination the idea that we conceive ideas for capabilities, services that might add value to the world, and that will result in us being compensated for that. And when you have a dream, it's always the question: How can I execute? How can I fulfill the dream? It's a a famous, very old cliched quote from Thomas Edison: "That genius is one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration." Right. And the challenge, of course, has been when you have an idea that revolves around computing and information technology. And of course, let's be clear. That's the fundamental platform here for that I'm, I'm most familiar with the platform capabilities, the ability for a person to realize their new product idea that has evolved considerably since the earliest days and you know this might seem very obvious but you know we had the initial precursors of computing where if you were a business person and just trying to solve an accounting problem or an insurance company you were dealing with extremely low level technical concerns i mean you were dealing with adders and registers and compilers didn't even exist But I'm being very specific. I'm talking about the experiences of a cat named Edmund Berkeley, who was the founder of the Association for Computing Machinery. You read some of the initial work he was trying to do for prudential insurance. And you're like, oh my gosh, this guy had to go way down the rabbit hole because Mm -hmm. we didn't have cloud. (laughs) We didn't even have compilers. We didn't have high-level languages. I mean, you're dealing with the digital equivalent of, of gears in an adding machine and trying to get them to work. And he thought there was value there because that was essentially how it started. You know, People came back from World War II where they'd seen these machines breaking codes and calculating artillery trajectories and are like, you know, there's probably some value here for business. And similar things happened in the UK. Well, we went through the whole history, and I don't want to go into a huge history lesson, mainframe and distributed computing and then cloud. And there I've just kind of casually summarized, you know, 60 years, but the the overall trend has been a continual reduction of the friction. You know, we go from, is it 99% perspiration to 80% perspiration to 60% perspiration? There's always going to be some perspiration in the Thomas Edison metaphor, but one does see a higher and higher order capability to go from idea to concept. And this is, for example, what you know, shocked people with the Silicon Valley. I still remember cartoons about this. The governing metaphor for creating large systems up until about 1998 and the rise of the internet, the governing metaphor was military and aerospace even if you were working in a enterprise or organization, a for-profit setting, you were heavily influenced by the thinking of the systems engineers who had created much of the first meaningful large-scale systems engineering paradigm. So you dealt with structured requirements and structured analysis and structured design, and analysis was different from design, which is a concept even back then i found myself trying to wrap my head around and then the internet came and people started realizing do we need all this overhead and also hey amazon came and all of a sudden you know computers i like to say the first 40 years of computing in enterprises it was basically putting big file cabinets onto hard disks i'm only (laughs) oversimplifying a little bit (laughs) you know we were putting enormous filing systems and the human capabilities. We were moving them from paper to silicon. And that took years just to do that. And then all of a sudden, Amazon came along and holy cow, this is not just a back office efficiency play, which is for the most part what the initial the initial driver was. It's more efficient to store data on a hard disk than it is to store it in big paper filing tablets, miles and miles of them. And then there's Jeff Bezos with Amazon actually making money. And there's Facebook and Google actually making money with computers. And this changed the whole commercial understanding of what digital technology could do. It also changed the assumptions about how one built digital technology. And people started to really realize that the old school military aerospace, milspec spec kinds of heavy mm-hmm. requirements analysis that's not was not going to help Facebook beat MySpace. They needed a completely different delivery paradigm that was much more attuned to, hey, I have a thought. I want to see that thought realized right now. And it still needs to be done reliably with availability and security. But we have to solve these things in a new way. So that was a long answer to a short question.
1: When it comes to these days, does it still make sense to make a difference between business logic, products, the organization underlying that, and technology, or these three things are becoming a little bit of a not separable overlap, and, and therefore, you know, in this case, what is the perspective we should be using? Should we be starting from the technology? Should we be starting from the product, or should we be starting from the organization?
0: There are always layers, and the layers never go away. The sidewalk outside my house is infrastructure. It will hold a certain amount of weight. And as long as I honor that basic constraint, cats and dogs can walk on it. Squirrels and rabbits can walk on it. People can walk on it. People can ride a bike on it. I can push a cart down it. The sidewalk lends itself to many applications of transportation. We are always going to have sidewalks. We're always, I mean, the fundamentals of computation they realized that they were all computers were all mathematically equivalent that was settled by the mathematicians in the 40s right so computation is a, is a reality we will always have computing machines and those computing machines just like electricity can be applied to a wide variety of use cases but the use cases do not dictate the the fact and the existence of the computing machine same thing with information transmission um, information and communication technologies they are their own legitimate domain and you don't need this is the beauty of it and yet maybe part of the problem the beauty of it is that you don't need a customized computer to run the supply chain that is distinctly different than a computer that would handle payments processing same basic logical apparatus ability to calculate, ability to store data, ability to transmit data. And I think that we lose sight of the forest for the trees. We're the fish in the water. We don't understand how miraculous the water is. The fact that you don't have to go to IBM and buy a different product line for a supply chain as compared to human resource management, as compared to payments processing, it's the same silicon running the same processing, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this is now changing with AI a little bit, but the whole idea of distinguishing hardware from software, maybe I'm just kind of, you know, saying some very, very fundamental things, but I get cautious when people say, well, it should all be business driven. Not the infrastructure layer. I don't want to have to go, you know, buy different virtual machines at Amazon to run supply chain versus payments. (laughs) No, it Mm -hmm. is all the same. And Amazon doesn't need, you know, it's useful for them to verticalize in terms of their marketing. They should understand. The particular needs of their supply chain clients versus the particular needs of their payments processing clients. That's all legitimate. But at the fundamental level, it's all one sidewalk.
1: I'm thinking of uh, trying to give our listeners an idea of when uh, enterprise architecture becomes an important topic. Because let's say we have a small company. Small companies tend to uh, not care too much about Enterprise architecture. No, right? Because maybe we, have they the only data,
0: we have survey data that shows that. I just, yeah, absolutely, exactly.
1: And because maybe they have only one product, and essentially the yeah. two things what are pretty it? much uh, uh, overlap. But at some point, companies grow, and uh, this is mm-hmm. one of the key topics we are researching at the moment, right? And mm-hmm. uh, our big belief at Moundless, especially, that uh, is that uh, uh, in the future or in the present, maybe. You can grow largely by diversifying your portfolio, okay? Because people want variety, technology has been lowering barriers, modularity is on the rise, AI is coming up as the universal duct tape that can put everything together. So, in this dynamic that brings one company to empower more, and you know that we are very famously fans of the idea of microentrepreneur units. So, yep.
0: Yep, you know, pushing that. a
1: lot of freedom into the product teams that can create their own stuff, their own architectures. So what's the meaning of enterprise architecture in a world that is no more bureaucratic, is much more mm-hmm. decentralized? That's one question that maybe I feel we should be answering.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And enterprise architecture has a, a is notorious for being solved with bureaucratic mechanisms. So... What we have to do is we have to get back to first principles. And I think in some ways, we almost get back to things like the theory of the firm, the whole micro entrepreneurship, of course, and you've had some great economic thinkers on this on this podcast, people who understand, you know, fundamentals of economics and strategic management. I've listened with with great interest for years now. So I would say that ultimately, there is no enterprise architecture for the economy you know, other than maybe the regulatory and uh, market apparatus. The basic architecture is, okay, well, we can exchange payments. And then if things go wrong, there's a, a, a legal system. We honor contracts. We have civil lawsuits if we need. We have criminal law if we need it. That's the architecture of the market. But nobody goes around telling people, well, you should be consistent in how you do X. We also, even in the broader market, have certain standards. Now, the standards are not necessarily legally enforced, but they take on a certain role of that if you want to buy and sell electrical power, you are going to fo- no one's going to buy or sell your electrical power unless you follow these protocols, unless you offer your, your, your product in, you know, in these increments with this voltage, with this wattage, using these particular physical forms to connect it. We see those kinds of dynamics playing out, even in a micro-entrepreneurial ecosystem. It's, it can't be a free-for-all, right? Now, let's look at a large enterprise. I've dealt with this. I've, I worked at a bank where we had 85 different P&Ls. So, you know, micro-enterprises, well, I mean, the p and is kind of the proto-micro-enterprise, right? Yes. Every one of these P&Ls had a different attitude and a different stance towards the central services. And it really becomes a question of, to some degree, shared governance, and then to another degree, shared service. And so as you look at how digital organizations scale within the boundaries of a firm, and the whole theory of the firm, you reduce transaction costs by having kind of a, a gated boundary around the firm. Now that doesn't mean that you, know, you can't take an internal capability and start to externalize it. But in general, the theory is, is if we have a set of internal microenterprises but we still have, they still have a a broader boundary around them, that this is beneficial and that the swarm of micro enterprises will grow more efficiently and can leverage certain common capabilities. Well, right there, you have the germination of the enterprise architecture demand problem conundrum. And we want to see things more voluntary and less command and control, but that's always been attention. I mean, even, you know, 20 years ago, when I first started to see enterprise architecture, it was very obvious to me that enterprise architecture sometimes got its way and sometimes didn't. You know, there is always a negotiation. Now, can enterprise architecture be very bureaucratic and top down? Yes. And that's the, in, in general, that plays out through a process called architecture review. And this is the classic process everybody hates. You have a product, And back, you know, we might have just called it an application or a project, you know, 15 years ago, because that was the language then. Either way, you're going to wind up with something running on a persistent basis, adding value. And you would have to forward all your designs. You have to answer a 20 page questionnaire and attach pictures and graphics and boxes and lines. And the architect would sit there, and, you, know, and you, may, you, know, you might not even see the architect, and they would you know, scrutinize your design. They'd come back. They'd ask you for more information. It was always on their time frame, not yours. If you were in a hurry, too bad. If you had project timelines, mm-hmm. too bad. And the architect eventually would render their decision top down from their ivory tower and tell you you had to go fix these things or maybe even that you couldn't proceed. And it would just lead to resentment. And ultimately, in many cases, architecture would get shut down. And But the trouble is, is then architecture would reemerge when the enterprise found itself in trouble. Just, I call this the pendulum, like a grandfather clock. You just watch it go back and forth. Mm-hmm. We're, we're high on architecture. We hate architecture. Oops, we need architecture. We just had a huge security breach or we've got too much technical debt or we can't move people amongst the micro-enterprises. And if we could move people amongst the micro-enterprises more easily, that would be valuable. The the micro-enterprises have too big an attack surface. Every micro-enterprise has to go through different security protocols. And ultimately, when you look at the reason that those protocols differ, it's not adding any value to the overall swarm. You know, there's no reason for people to use 16 different forms of authentication there's no good reason for people to choose their own monitoring tools especially when there's interdependencies between the micro enterprises and the micro enterprises are providing services to each other well if you've got six different monitoring tools that don't talk to each other you're not going to understand the overall health of your swarm of micro enterprises Mm -hmm. these questions never go away they always come back
1: First, you spoke about architecture as a mediation layer, some type, some kind of mediation layer. you spoke about protocols, like basic architectures, you know, uh, uh, language. We come from decades, you know, in the past, let's say in the last uh, maybe 40 years, 30 years, at least, uh, architecture as a bureaucratic process that was very technologically centered, right? right? Instead, what I perceive now is that uh, when you explain that architecture is becoming the language for the organization to collaborate, let's say, um, it resonates a lot with uh, uh, the work that we are doing and a lot of people are doing. For example, and uh, you know the listeners on the podcast have, have been uh, able to to listen. For example, for the conversation we had with uh, Craig Strong on taxonomies mm-hmm. and portfolios. Which are essentially um, uh, ways that the organization, a multi-product organization, uh, decides intentionally to share a certain way to look at products that Mm -hmm. makes these products easier to integrate. Okay, so for example, we can say we do point solutions, we do bundles in this way. Then we have DIY platforms for customers to put pieces together and so on. And this is a kind of taxonomy. Sometimes it's more vertical. Sometimes it's more horizontal. But it's a way for people to say, "Okay, let's agree on something." Because you know, agreeing it's costly, but it has some positive uh, uh, outcomes. But so yeah. let's agree on the minimum thing that uh, will allow everybody to be autonomous, entrepreneurial, but at the same time yeah. allow us to have some coherence. And uh, another point that is emerging for me is that um, uh, when you bring up topics such as compliance. Security, which mm-hmm. are things that, uh, ironically enough, people tend to uh, value a lot as a consumer, as a customer, mm-hmm. yes. and value very little as a as a developer, as a producer, as an inventor. Let's say sure. when we invent things, we don't want to care about security. Who cares? But then, when we right. consume stuff, we want to be very sure that uh, our data is not leaked or that uh, you know our transactions go go well and don't crash every every second. So. I feel like there is another piece that is coming. You know, so fr- from one side, we have these taxonomy agreements, product descriptions. And on the other side, we have what we traditionally uh, identified as coming from the world of DevOps or in general, again, enterprise architecture. So this idea that some services, some platforms, for example, we can create yeah. are at the same time products and uh, technological constraints that we decide to uh, yeah. adopt in our organization. So can you maybe talk a little bit about uh, uh, if if this is resonating with you? Absolutely.
0: uh, This is a core research topic for us at Forrester. I I led the Forrester research into product-centric, and then I also led the research into platform, and then I got promoted to uh, management. And so now Julie Moore, who works for me, is leading our research on platform because I don't get to do the fun things anymore. Um, (laughs) I think the pressures that you outlined result in the attention to platform engineering now the interesting thing we're seeing and we're seeing this in large-scale organizations around the world are trying to move traditional infrastructure and operations into platform thinking and the challenge is is what does this really mean and am i actually doing something different am i moving in a more Entrepreneurial, intrapreneurial direction? Or am I just rebranding myself? I'm giving myself a new coat of paint, but I'm still bureaucratic. I'm still command and control. It still takes too long to get services from me. I have no customer feedback. I have no sense of my internal customer. That's the big challenge because the infrastructure organization, the traditional infrastructure organization, when challenged with the modern platform thinking, what you find is a large an economically huge part of the corporation that now needs to think in terms of product and has never done so. So there is a staffing gap. I think you could almost call it a, a, well, crisis is probably too strong a word, but there's a huge opportunity. And if anybody out there is listening to this and they're a boutique trainers, there's a need for infrastructure product management to support the new platform engineering trend. A couple other points on platform engineering. How does it relate to enterprise architecture? We recommend it as absolutely a priority for enterprise architecture groups. And it's very pragmatic, very easy to understand. Look, You've had a 20 page questionnaire that you hit people over the head with. Fill out my questions. Give me, you know, tell me everything you're doing so I can tell you whether you're right or wrong. You can take 90% of that questionnaire and put it into the platform. You put it into the continuous delivery tool chain that does the software bill of materials, it does the static analysis, it does the dynamic analysis, it does all the quality assurance. With maybe a small residual that you want humans checking. And then the target of that continuous delivery pipeline is a defined cloud platform that solves for monitoring, security, segmentation. Well, that's, you know, again, that's going to be performance and security, backup, all of the things that developers hate to talk about and hate to think about. It's just all there. And then the conversation with the product leads, it goes like this: you say, well, If you want to go build all your own infrastructure, you want to go source every last component, you want to source your own compute, your own network, your own security, you want to source your own architecture engineering at the infrastructure level, you're fine. You're free to go do that because we're an entrepreneurial organization. And you can take six months to do that and then you're still going to be subject to, at the very least, security overviews because we're not going to allow you to deploy it and leak data all over the world. Or you can offer your budget code to the platform team, and your developers can be writing code tomorrow on a predefined, highly secure stack with all of the infrastructure taken care of. And at that point, if you have good entrepreneurial thinkers they're going to be thinking in terms of the commercial challenge that they're faced with 6 months of delay with an uncertain outcome or start developing code tomorrow i know which i would choose unless of course i'm developing net new gen ai capabilities and the platform is not there in which case yes i need to go build infrastructure and figure out a whole bunch of lower level stuff this might seem very simple but it has taken some it has taken us decades to get here And I still talk to organizations where people say, yeah, you know, people just seem to like to play with toys. You know, they want to go build low-level stuff. That's what they've done their whole life. They're used to doing it. And we're still struggling to get people to buy into the platforms.
1: It's fascinating because as I was listening to you, I was thinking that... all this conversation around the platform organization that we are listening. So, for example, I was, listen, I was reading a, a blog post, uh, an article uh, that uh, came out in October from BCG called Platforms Why Now? And uh, they, really, they were really making the case for the platform organization, which is essentially what we're talking about. So yep. shared services, micro enterprises, and so on. And uh, I, I feel like, really, it makes no sense to talk about tech and org as two separate things. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you think about uh, um, what's happening in, uh, in tech now, everything is an API, everything is pluggable, you, you can right. compose things and so on. And if we kind of think about what Bezos did uh, like 15 years ago, very uh, maybe, maybe less, I think it was early 2010, something like that, or maybe earlier, uh, when we enforced the API mandate. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, teams can interact with each other only through APIs or yes. more generally a service-oriented architecture, say. Yes. He was basically saying our company, our organization is technology. Okay. We right. are a technology organization. And so suddenly and fascinating as well, uh, when you transform a social interface into a technological mm-hmm. interface, you overcome the limitation of your company, so everything starts to be. It starts to let to make less sense to consider who you can collaborate with only inside your organization. You, you start mm-hmm. to be okay. You know if there is right. an interface here, the interface is secure. I can collaborate with anyone. At first, I was thinking, okay, in this situation, okay, aren't big players uh, uh, disadvantaged? Okay, why? Because of course, you know, if everything is modular, you tend to think that. Uh, being a big company, it slows you down, you know? So it's, it's very problematic to do 10 different modules as an organization, as a large organization versus the nimbleness and capability of a small team to create uh, a modular product and bring it to the market. But suddenly, uh, as you were talking, uh, I, I was making this connection and said, you know, but maybe if uh, instead of having to take care of security, scalability, and, and uh, a few other elements when I create a product as a small team which is going to mm-hmm. is going to drain a lot of my energy and and uh, yeah, money so and so on maybe at the end of the day a, a big company that really succeeds to create this enabling infrastructure enabling architecture yeah can generate uh, much faster innovations because the teams can uh, innovate at a product level without Having to take care of security, compliance, scalability, and so on—is it does it make sense?
0: Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. And I think that you know the challenge then for the startups is uh, how to quickly assemble that infrastructure out of readily available components. There are still smaller organizations. You know, most of the components that I'm mentioning are readily available by the large cloud providers. The challenge that the small players run into is you have. As you say, if you start to expand by differentiating, you create your first product and there was a certain thought process and you had lead engineers and they went and they selected you know, certain Amazon products and they stitched it all together into a secure and compliant and available and deliverable product you know, that was they, they could operate and gain value from. And so they say, okay, it's time for product number two. Their thought process is still that I need to wire together a bunch of lower stuff, and I think at that point you see this divergence. Do they simply charter another team who goes through all the same thought process, and now you have two technical stacks, or do they take the first team and they say, okay, take your existing tech stack and build the second thing? And it's not easy, you know. And it seems, you know, uh, you know, clear that you know it would be probably more efficient if they took the existing tech stack and built the second thing. But there may be a lot of pragmatic reasons why they find that very difficult, starting with the fact that they're making money over here and they don't want to move these people over here. And so now you got the second team and they're like, well, we don't like Amazon. We like Azure, you know, Mm -hmm. like the most extreme example. It might be more subtle than that. You know, it might be Kubernetes versus let's stay on let's go out serverless with Lambda or whatever. Um, But you start to see the emergence of variation. And as soon as you start seeing that emergence of variation, especially if it's not really adding value, and this is where the technologists, they will fight bitterly. They will say, well, my assessment of the business dynamics are that this product needs to have serverless architecture. It needs to run on Lambda. It can't run on Kubernetes with traditional code. And then you're in a world of debate and argument and passion. And then the question is as well, would it run adequately on Kubernetes? Well, yeah, but it wouldn't be perfect. It doesn't meet my complete vision. These are hard questions. And this is where architecture, I think, plays a role, maybe not on the transition from the first product to the second product in the portfolio. I mean, realistically, you're not gonna put in an architecture group. But by the time you start to see these dynamics playing out in terms of a dozen products or a hundred products, You're going to need somebody who's skilled at facilitating these discussions. And this is where I kind of want to circle back and and say, it's not about architecture as command and control. It's about architecture as presenting the bigger picture and facilitating the discussions. And I definitely think that all architects should be skilled in group process and facilitation, They should be familiar with the work of, is it the Harvard negotiation prod, the the getting to yes people, that all of that, that's just as important as technical skills for the enterprise architect, because ultimately, and I would find myself in this position many times, I didn't know what the right answer might be. I was tasked to go sort out some situation. You know, Mm -hmm. the last thing my manager told me, and this was 15 years ago in banking, you know, I mean, let's let's get past the caricature. I didn't walk in and say, oh, I know everything and I'm going to tell you people what to do. That wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work then. It certainly wouldn't work now. But I was there as the designated facilitator and person whose job it was to kind of be the diplomat and try and get to some alignment and agreement. And that's Mm -hmm. the part of architecture that I think is is underappreciated and yet that good architects have always done, you know, and this is, Another reason why architecture doesn't go away. You find at scale that you need a cadre or a core of people who can do that kind of thing. And it's an essential, as you say, a, a mediation layer. I love that term. Hey,
1: you're listening to this episode on an audio only version. Get the best of the experience by watching these and other episodes in video on YouTube. Go to YouTube and search for boundless conversations, or just take your browser and write. BLSS.io slash BCPY, all capital letters, and you get there. On YouTube, you'll be able to subscribe to our channel and get notifications when new episodes are released. Another topic that came to my mind is that, you know, if we agree that uh, large enterprises may have an advantage versus smaller players uh, once they yeah. create uh, a mm-hmm. level playing field that uh, grants their teams uh, full capacity of innovation without having to deal with uh, the implications in terms of security or data management or, cl- or you know, scalability and so on. Yes. Uh, on the other side, I'm thinking that, uh, you, know, you also mentioned that, uh, um, for example, there is a, an emerging movement around what uh, people call uh, digital public infrastructures. So mm-hmm. not not only policy makers are making policy, but they're also making infrastructure. For example, if you talk about what's happening in India, right? When you mm-hmm. have infrastructures for commerce, infrastructure for yeah. payments, and so on. I see that as a first threat for large enterprises, like the public mm-hmm. players that are moving into build, building infrastructure, right? On the other side, you have a threat that is coming directly from the big uh, uh, commodity players like Amazon, Azure, and so on. Mm -hmm. I see the possibility that uh, uh, these big players or public players kind of eat the cake of the enterprise and create this secure level playing field. Because, you know, for example, there can be the government of India. You know, we had Arvind Gupta on the podcast saying, we're going to take care of uh, data uh, identity and, uh, you know, uh, data access, data portability Mm -hmm. and compliance and security. So startups, let's innovate. We're going to take care of the security of the thing. And again, these are threats for large companies. But at the same time, uh, when you talk about the architects as facilitators, mediators, and, and um, you, you know, in the preparatory conversation, you brought up this perspective of uh, systems of systems and you know? also the, mm-hmm. the necessity for architects to embrace a certain uh, systems thinking approach and uh, being able to kind of put all the stakeholders on the same place. I feel like the the ultimate value of an architecture will be to communicate to the customer a certain coherence of uh, uh, service and brand um, so that the customer might uh, choose intentionally to work or to use the services of a certain enterprise versus the market because of a certain legibility of a certain Mm -hmm. type of uh, narrative or communication or information architecture so is the work of architects moving away from technology and increasingly moving into customer needs, um, yeah. and and you know explaining, yeah. uh, taxonomizing and ontologies that can you know facilitate yeah. the customer engagement.
0: Absolutely, and that's that's always been a part of architecture. I mean, in architecture, we use a very very classic old model called Bdat, B D A T. It stands for business data application and technology. You know, some people think that we should move past it. I think it's still a useful construct. Business architecture does include analysis of capabilities and value streams. Data architecture is not just physical databases. In fact, that's where it ends. Data architecture, properly understood, starts with the ontology. Managing the ontology, managing the enterprise vocabulary is absolutely essential. I remember still when I was at, at, at Target Corporation, the famous U.S. retailer, the, uh, lead, the lead data architect, one of the early conversations with him had to do with a, a database attribute. And I uh, had used the word price or somebody had suggested the word price. And he said, no. In retail, we have two numbers. We have cost. And then we have the word retail. Cost is what we paid for the razor blade. Retail is what we sell it at. The word price does not appear anywhere in our data model. And that was not a technical discussion. That was an ontology discussion. He was schooling me in the correct ontology of large-scale merchandising retail. So, yes, architects... To some extent have always played that role. And that, that, that conversation happened 15, 25 years ago. I'm getting old. <laughs> right. Um, so yes, architecture has always had that ontology, standardization, stabilization. And this is why it also serves, you know, why it, it is positioned as a mediating layer because you work at the system of systems level, you socialize certain terminologies, a capability map is nothing more than a way to socialize certain terminologies and make sense of a complex uh, ecosystem in terms that everybody at least grudgingly acquiesces to. I'm not going to say that people enthusiastically agree, but typically the capability map is, it's at least a common map that people can start with.
1: It's fascinating because uh, I was talking to... Alex Komoroske a few weeks ago, and uh, I said that uh, there's a lot of excitement in uh, in AI and uh, what AI can do, for example, to uh, reduce our need to comply with standards, for example, right? Because uh, being this magic duct tape that can put pieces together, we, we kind of don't care anymore about standards. We do our own thing and the AI will sort out how to connect stuff, right? At the same time, I feel like in a world that uh, makes things more easily pluggable, you know, there's a lot of adapters you can use, wrappers, no code, AI, whatever. My intuition was that uh, um, it makes agreements on shared significance and meaning and ontologies more important instead of less important, okay? More intentionally agreeing... May bear uh, fruits. Uh, why I was thinking about that? Because if you think in terms of first principles, you can you can see how putting effort into something bears beer, uh, bears fruits, right? Bears results. I don't want to get to uh, maybe this is a bit of track, but if you think about Diogenes, that uh, used to go around in a barrel and uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, putting himself into this kind of funny situation, so that. Uh, it could seem crazy but at the same time was going around and telling people that they were really uh, you know uh, not not men you know they were really stupid people basically you know so he was doing the, the crazy man and uh, at the same time was uh, uh, telling people that to some extent uh, uh, they were not intelligent right and i think this is a message that tells you if something has a cost it bears a meaning right so mm-hmm. the cost of agreeing can bear a meaning in the interaction, right? That's the point mm-hmm. that I was trying to make. And it was mm-hmm. just an intuition. But then now I talk to you and we surface this idea that um, the success of an architect is about communicating to the customer and uh, clearly articulating the brand message and a product message and an architecture and, uh, and a taxonomy of products. If I look at your outcome driven architecture model that maybe you can talk about uh, a bit in the coming minutes, It starts from experiences. It doesn't start from the technology. It starts from the customer, uh, Mm -hmm. the outcomes that the customers want to achieve. Can you maybe help me connect uh, the work that you have been doing at Forrester on the outcome driven architecture model with this conversation?
0: So the outcome driven architecture model is based on the concept of an impact map. It doesn't have a particularly formalized semantics, and it was also uh, reflective of Forrester, some broader themes at Forrester, broader research themes at Forrester that enterprises, high-performing enterprises, future-fit enterprises, are essentially adaptive, creative, and resilient. This is what leads to customer value, customer the customer wishing to do business with the enterprise. So, what we need is we need mechanisms by which the systems, the products, the value propositions support these higher level values of adaptive, creative, and resilient. In more traditional representations, we might position those higher values as revenue, mission, outcome, cost, risk, and customer experience. But to develop those or to support those, we have certain architecture capabilities that operate via influence on products, projects, applications, services, whatever you want to call them. And we've gone round and round on that terminology for ever since I've been in the industry. But those architecture capabilities are very basic. They include the people, who is the architect, You know, the practices, what does the architect do? The artifacts, you know, how does the architecture capability reify its information and insight into artifacts? And then engagement, how does the architecture group actually influence very specifically? And architecture groups right now, the priority I have with many of my clients is identifying how do you engage? because they will talk all day about that they've got a bunch of architects doing architecture and creating all these architecture diagrams. When I say, well, what does it mean? Why do you do these? The answers sometimes are not satisfactory. So I'm really push people on what is your engagement model? Is it traditional architecture of you where you're command and control, or are you embedding people? Are you offering people architects to come sit with them? And we have about eight different flavors of engagement that we've identified. And then at the very bottom of the model, and this is where the impact map paradigm is is a little bit turned on its head, because at the bottom of the model, we're not talking about the low-level activities and concerns. We're talking about the cultural priorities, the cultural values of the architecture group itself. The architecture group must strongly internalize a burning desire to be valuable and accountable and agile. And this is also, I think a really important aspect of next generation architecture. When I say accountable, I don't mean that you're holding other people accountable. I mean that you yourself are holding yourself accountable and you are demonstrating accountability to the enterprise that you have a very clear understanding of your value and what you're trying to do. You're doing things like tracking user sentiment, you know, tracking the sentiment of your stakeholders. And again, too many architecture groups in years past, they just assumed that they had a mandate to be command and control, and they would proceed in that until they angered too many people. And all of a sudden, you come in one morning and architecture is disbanded. And that's the pattern that we're trying to get people out of because it's very wasteful.
1: It sounds really like a massive reality check that has arrived in the last uh, five years or so for uh, large organizations,
0: am I right? Well, I think that, that especially when the economy, architecture's stock goes up and down, but when the economy encounters challenges, people are confronted with the need to rationalize their portfolio, to look more systematically at it. And I'll close by saying, at the end of the day, there are basically three ways to manage a large investment portfolio with, of technologies. One is command and control. You simply say things like, well, 15% cut across the board, or you, know, you have high-level people simply making decisions that appear in often high, arbitrary, poorly advised, and there are consequences and it doesn't go well. Another way that we see these play out is it's not clear who's making the decisions. There's a whisper network, but it's not hmm. transparent. The third way to rationalize a large-scale digital portfolio is to use some kind of a transparent, reasonably transparent, and systematic and rational approach. And my argument is, is that if you're doing that, if you're managing your portfolio systematically and rationally, you're doing architecture, whether you call it that or not. Right. Because you are inventorying your assets and your capabilities and your systems and your products you are looking at redundancy, you're looking at sprawl, you're trying to make well-advised investment decisions based on, you know, the technical debt and the currency and the user attitudes and, you know, the internal demand. I mean, business within a business, you know, get back to the entrepreneurship, the micro enterprises, you're looking at things as essentially, you know, entities in the small that are run as small businesses. To me, that's where Really, this world of micro enterprises and architecture converges um, in significant ways.
1: Looks like uh, enterprise architecture is embracing a real architectural approach. So something Mm -hmm. that is based rather than in command and control, which doesn't sound like architecture at all, into something that is much based into creating constraints so that uh, teams can uh, engage and... uh, generate value, because uh, yep. if you cannot generate value in the world of today, it yep. doesn't work. It's no more like 20 years ago or 15 years ago. So mm-hmm. I think we are really seeing a reckoning of the profession of an architect, uh, which is a, a kind of a convergence of uh, being able to create shared agreements and facilitate uh, shared languages and uh, creating enabling constraints rather than coming from a technological, I uh, would say, supremacy perspective and saying, you have to do this, you have to do that because uh, otherwise there would be too much risk that we don't want to manage. Essentially, the world is pushing for a much different approach and it looks like that yeah. uh, the architecture community is finally embracing that approach. And interestingly, I think it's taking more, a more important role in the organization rather than uh, being you know, more limited. Basically, the transition from a bureaucratic top-down perspective into an enabling value-driven perspective has increased the, the importance of enterprise architecture rather than decrease it.
0: One would hope so. And you know, we're, we, we hear various stories from across the industry, but in, in general, you know, we know that a majority of large organizations continue to invest in the practice and support it. And I think mm-hmm. for, for all the reasons we've discussed here today.
1: Charts, it's been a, a, a fantastic conversation. Before we, we close, would you like to maybe share a couple of breadcrumbs sure. to our audience?
0: Yeah. Um, so one in particular, there is a man named uh, uh, Dean Meyer, uh, who has been writing about intrapreneurship and microenterprise philosophy for a long, long time. And his most recent book is kind of the culmination of his journey. It's called uh, "How Organizations Should Work," by uh, full name is N. Dean Meyer. So that's one. Um, I think he might be an interesting fellow for you to talk to. Um, but have a look at his have a look at his book. But he's talking about all of these same principles, and he talks about how. Broader enterprise objectives like architecture can and should be funded and supported and and are relevant still in an entrepreneurial microenterprise world. And the other person who I think you might be familiar with is uh, Don Reinertsen, who has written just tremendously authoritative and rigorous books on thinking about product management from a lean perspective. And Don is one of the most cited individuals in the Agile and DevOps communities, and yet he's not at all a technologist. His background is is actually in mechanical engineering. And uh, also, he spent time in the U.S. military. He ran nuclear reactors on submarines, I think. And then he worked for, I believe, McKinsey. He coined the term the fuzzy front end of product development. But when... I read so many of the agile leading thinkers. I find that, you know, if I read one of their books, I find that they're citing Don Reinertsen. Mm-hmm. you know, and then Don Reinertsen, he's citing like core th- economic theory, core, you know, distributed, or, sorry, discrete math theory. He's, you know, very, very rigorous, but you can understand his work. You know, it's not that he's full of, equ- his, his books have, you know, some math in them, but it's not overwhelming. It's generally understandable. And um, I think he's he yeah he's he has had so much influence that that kind of operating behind the scenes. Thank you so much. I think uh, our listeners often
1: appreciated this uh, deep connection with first principles. So I think this book uh, sounds like an interesting book for our audience.
0: Yeah, and Don, yeah, Don would be an awesome guest on your program. Absolutely. Yes,
1: we will we will ponder. So thank you so much okay. for the guest suggestions as well. Um, I mean, yep. again, Charles, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. I think we managed to talk about a few very deep uh, questions around uh, enterprise architecture, and uh, we are we have been stretching the concept quite a lot. So I'm very happy for the for the conversation. I hope you also enjoyed.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, oh, great! Great to have a, great to talk with you this morning. And thank you again for having me on. I'm I'm honored, given you know some of the folks you've had on this podcast. So thank thanks very thank much. Thank
1: you so much. And uh, I really encourage our listeners to follow your work. You are always a uh, very great updates on this topic. For our listeners, don't forget to head to slash uh, resources podcast where you can find uh, uh, charts, uh, interview, and you can find a transcript and all the links to the. Uh, breadcrumbs and other things that uh, uh, Charles mentioned during the conversation. Until we speak again, remember to think boundaryless.